Yes? Okay. Good. Thank you. Um, I want to set a context for this morning's message because it's not, I think I already said it correctly, this is more of an exhortation sermon. Um, I'm, I much prefer doing an exposition, exposition sermon, uh, but I didn't really feel comfortable doing that today um, because uh, I just felt like I needed to put some perspective on how I see our world and what's gone on. I, I would say for at least the last 20 years, I've been distressed at the trajectory of our nation. That's not a political statement at all. That's a spiritual statement. And I've been distressed because um, we seem to have substituted things for the living God. Um, the title of the message this morning is Ideology or Incarnation. And I'm going to suggest that too often um, we have found comfort in ideologies and simplistic answers to the life of faith which just aren't real. And I think many of you, like me, have been praying for revival over the last number of years. Um, we are, many of us know people that believe that revival is coming, and I can certainly say, Lord, come quickly. Uh, now would be fine time for the revival to break out. Uh, because it seems to, to us and to many of us that this is the only thing that, that really is what we can depend on at this point, would be a movement of the Spirit of God. To that end, I've been reading lately, I've been, I've been reading a book called The Phases of the Four Great Awakenings by a guy named Robert Fogel. Uh, he actually believes that we're in the beginning of a revival now, the fourth, what he calls the fourth revival, or the fourth awakening in our nation. Most of us in school studied the first awakening, and some of us studied the second great awakening. He suggests that in a third great awakening, uh, there, is, there are three distinct phases to any, any revival or any sort of awakening that happens. The first begins religiously, excuse me. The first begins religiously. And he believes that because of our heritage and, and who we are, the revivals that happen do happen within the church of Jesus Christ. He also believes then that as a result of that, there is an outworking of that that has a political effect that changes and challenges ultimately the status quo. I thought it was an interesting argument. I thought it was worthy of reflection, but I found it most helpful in terms of trying to put together uh, this morning's message. Because the observations that he makes about the Third Great Awakening, which he suggests started around 1890 and went into the mid-1960s, rang true to the way that I've sort of lived my life in this country over the last half of the, of the 20th century. He characterizes this religious revival, the religious part of it, as a shift from an emphasis on personal to social sin. And he argues that there's a rise in belief that poverty is not a personal failure but a societal failure that can be addressed by the state. And then he says that, it, that we have shifted to a more secular interpretation of the Bible. And it's kind of hard to argue with that sort of fundamental premise. The author then writes that the political effect of this spiritual event manifested itself in a number of ways, including an attack on the corruption of big business, labor reform, civil rights, women's rights, a conviction that poverty is something that society can solve, an attack on religious and racial barriers, which led then later on to an attack on women's rights and other sexual discrimination rights. So as I thought more about this argument, it struck me that what we are experiencing today is in many ways the logical outcome of this third awakening. We are a nation that has created a secular religion to
to rival the traditional faith of our fathers and our mothers. Or to put it another way, we're a nation that often embraces an ideology over the incarnation. So this morning, instead of doing a formal expository sermon, as I always do, I want to suggest an argument for why the incarnation needs to come back to the fundamental place in our lives and in our positions in our churches. That it will define who we are as believers. And I'm going to ask you as I go about this to sort of search your heart to determine whether there's a smidge of ideology that's sort of taking over in the way that you approach your life. And insofar as ideology is taking over your life, I'm going to call on you to repent of that. Because really, there's only one thing that's going to resolve our issues, and that's the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the saving grace that comes as a result of what he has done. So with that as sort of a precede to what I want to say, let's, let's turn in our Bibles then to John chapter 1. I'm not going to expound this, but I am going to focus in on verse 14, which I know you all know, but I want to suggest is the crux of the matter before us today. It's found on page 833 of your pew Bible. Very, very familiar words, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. <clears throat> he came as a witness to bear witness about the life, about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. God, in some respects, I'm on rather tenuous ground this morning because I'm not going to just expound your word, which is what we've all come to hear. But I do pray that as I speak this morning, that you would move in our hearts and in our midst, that your spirit would help us to sort out the wheat from the chaff, that things that are not true would be just not really been heard by us. But things that are true would speak deeply into our lives. We desire heart change. That's why we're part of a family of faith. We don't do this as some sort of ceremony. We do this because we realize we've engaged the living God through whom all things flow. And so I pray, Father, that your word would go forth with strength and with power and with conviction this day, and that you'd be honored by what I say. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm actually going to start this morning with... I know that felt like I started now the second time. But I'm actually going to start the message this morning by, uh, by telling a story. 
This is a God sighting story. Uh, and I'm going to give a little plug here for Wednesday nights. This summer during on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, we're gathering here those of us who have seen God work and taking an opportunity to share those stories with one another because they're just a great source of encouragement. Uh, when we look at the ways that God has worked in our lives, throughout our lives, it reinforces for us that we're not alone, that we're encouraging one another and building one another up. So as I tell this story, recognize that this would be the kind of story that you'd hear on Wednesday night if you come. And I want to encourage you to come. This story, uh, the call that I'm going to talk about, this is a telephone call actually, came late in the evening on a school night, my freshman year in college. This is like 50 years ago. In those days, there was just one phone on each floor of the dormitory, and everybody in the dorm heard your call, or at least your side of the call, because there was no privacy. I mean, that was how it was back then. Uh, this, the call that night came from my youth pastor wanting to know whether or not I would be willing to submit my name to represent our local church in a national assembly of, of the church that I grew up in. This was called the General Assembly. This was the first time they were ever going to have youth delegates. They thought that this would you know, maybe bring a spark to the local churches if they had these young people here from all over the country. And so I was kind of honored and I was pleased that he had considered me for this position. And so I said, this would be great. I'm excited about this. Can you tell me when this is going to happen? And uh, after telling him that, my heart sank because the dates that he gave me was finals week in college. And complicating matters even more was that I was also cross-registered at Holy Cross across the other side of town, taking a, a Bible class. And so I was going to get permission not from just one college, but from two colleges as a freshman to skip final exams. And that usually doesn't happen. So I begged off and told him I was flattered and I was pleased, but I didn't see any way that I could attend. That night when I lay down, I couldn't sleep. Now, anybody who knows me can attest to the fact that within 15 seconds of hitting the pillow, I'm gone and I'm, I'm dead asleep. But that night I couldn't sleep at all. And I can remember seeing my clock turn to two, it turned to three, and I was really kind of frantic and desperate, but I had this, I just was overwhelmed by the fact that I couldn't sleep. And I was convinced that it had something to do with this phone call that I had early that evening. So I bargained with God. Using Gideon as my model, I decided, okay, I'll lay a fleece before God and see what happens. So I'll call back my youth pastor tomorrow morning and I'll tell him, this is me negotiating with God, I promise I'll tell him he can put my name in. What are the odds? 30 churches, 30 young people, what are the odds I'm going to be chosen? It's safe. God, if you just let me go to sleep, I promise I'll call him in the morning. Bam. Right to sleep. I mean, it was like a normal night. And four hours later, I woke up totally refreshed as though I hadn't had a shortage of sleep. So, dutifully, I got up that morning. I called my youth pastor. I said, so I can't explain it, but okay, put my name in. But don't push it real hard because, like, it's finals week and I don't think I can go anyway, but just throw my name in the hat. So he said, fine. Well, six weeks go by and there's no word from anybody about the resolution of this story. And so I assume that uh, somebody else has been selected. But then the phone rings and my youth pastor excitedly says to me, I have good news for you. You're going to Rochester, New York to the General Assembly. And to me, that was not good news. Because to me, I had a minor, a minor panic attack. Like, how is this going to possibly work out? 
it's finals, I'm a freshman, this doesn't happen, this is not a Christian school. How does the second, fresh, second semester freshman get out of exams? So I decide the quickest way to put an end to this is to go and see the Dean of Students, a man that I've never met before, but what's the Dean of Students for, right? So I go to see the Dean of Students and I lay out for him my quandary, expecting him fully to say, well, nothing I can do to help you out, at which point I'll call the youth pastor back and I'll say, eh, I tried, it didn't work out. I present my case, his name was Dean Tompkins. Dean Tompkins looks at me and he says, you know, I don't think we have many, I know we have very, very few young people at this college that are at all involved in spiritual things. I think this is great. I'm gonna go and talk to your professors, you're out of finals. You don't have to do any of your finals. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> but that's only half the equation. I have to go across to my other professor, the other college, and try to get out of that final. So the next morning I get up and I go over to and I, Father McCarthy's teaching New Testament survey and if you've ever been to Holy Cross you know that when you register for a class you either sign up that you're Catholic or you're other. So I was other and New Testament survey was pretty much stuff that I'd grown up learning in Sunday school so it was not a particularly difficult class for me but it was kind of interesting to hear the perspective of, of uh, the priest there. And I said to Father McCarthy at the end of class, you know I had this opportunity, I know it's kind of weird, it's during finals. He looked me in the eye and said, your average is so much higher than everybody else in the class, the final's not gonna make any difference. You just go, have a great time at the conference. So God showed up. Now, I can't actually tell you a lot about what happened in Rochester. Um, I could recount one anecdote that is not germane to the sermon this morning, but there were two sort of hot issues that day during that week that we were there. The first was that the National Church had decided that they would give $5,000 of local missions money to the defense of Angela Davis, who was a communist atheist woman who was accused of harboring a cop killer. And they decided that would be a good use of denominational funds to support her legal defense. This didn't go over particularly well with the people that were in the assembly. But the real hot button item that day was an affirmative action proposal that was coming in order to expedite getting women into pastoral service. And so in, this, in essence, this was, a, this was an attempt to try and, uh, and guarantee any woman who felt like she was called to any sort of church service that she would have preferential treatment in the hiring process. Now, to be honest, I didn't completely understand that issue in 1971 when I was a 19-year-old at this, at this uh, meeting. The church that I grew up in followed what was called the regulatory principle of worship, which basically means that unless the Bible specifically says that you should do it, you don't do it unless you have real confidence that this is the way that you should go. Right? You have to really challenge your assumptions if it doesn't conform to the Word of God. Now, I found out later that there are people who look at the Bible the completely other way, and they read it as saying, if the Bible doesn't prohibit it, then it's all fine. But the, the upbringing that I had was completely the other, was that God's word was primus, had, had the role of primacy, and so therefore everything had to fit in in conformity with God's word. And so as this debate went on, I felt like I would, like I would stand up and I sort of voiced what I had been taught. So I waited in, in line at the eight microphone, you know, there was about eight microphones around this auditorium in Rochester, New York, and I presented myself at one of the microphones waiting my turn to speak. I only got out, I think about the first one or two sentences of what I wanted to say. This is how I started. I 
said to the members of the assembly, and I'm not really sure that I understand exactly the, you know, the motivation behind this uh, motion that we're considering here. The Bible says in Galatians 3.28 that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male or female. Shouldn't we just be looking for the best possible candidates for positions of leadership in the church? Well, at that moment, the auditorium broke out into this horrific booing. There were about 4,000 activists that were sitting up in the balcony and they're just raining down booze on this heretic that's standing before the microphone. This was me, a 19-year-old kid. And it was kind of unnerving. It was overwhelming. And I just didn't know what to do. And so more or less embarrassed, I just kind of slunk off to my seat and sat back down again. I didn't understand what was going on, but it was clear that I had touched a hot button. The debate went on for another 15 or 20 minutes, at which point an elderly black gentleman um, got up, and as he began his remarks, he addressed me personally, and he said, this is the gist of what he said, young man, what you are trying to say is true, but sadly, people will not do the right thing, even if the Bible mandates it, unless they are forced to do the right thing. That's why this is so important to so many people. You naively assume that people strive to be obedient to God's word. But sadly, I can tell you as a lifelong believer that even in the Christian church, this is just not true. That's 1970, 1971. And this was the first time that for me, I saw ideology kind of take precedence over the word of God. Now, I'm not talking about whether it's good or bad for women nothing to do with the issue. The issue was how did they make the decision? What was the basis on which the decision was going to be made? Was it going to be made on what the substance of God's word was or was it going to be made on the feelings of the people in the audience? And it was pretty clear at that time that the feelings of the people in the audience were much more important than what God's word had to say. As I've looked back on that event more than 50 years ago, I've observed how our country has changed, particularly over the last 20 years in an accelerating manner. We as a nation and a church too often derive, are driven by ideology rather than by incarnation. In other words, either because of a lack of faith in the power of the living God to transform the hearts and minds of people, or because we have embraced a belief that real answers to societal problems lie with a government agency, a parachurch organization, or a non-governmental organization, we have begun to trust in ideologies over the transformational power of the Incarnation. I'm going to make what you may consider to be an outrageous statement now, and that's okay. Because you all know me, and I know you, and I love you, and I care about you. So I want you to hear what my observation is on this. If Jesus Christ came to the United States of America today, he would be rejected by both sides of the political aisle and by the majority of people who call themselves Christians. Politically liberal people would reject him because his words speak too much about judgment and accountability. His words speak about individual responsibility and at best a peaceful coexistence with government rather than looking to government to provide the answer to the societal problems that beset our world. 
Jesus would not wink at sin. He wouldn't justify sin. He certainly would not celebrate it. He would call it out and say, go and sin no more. He would not compromise with any system that holds itself as the arbiter of what is right and wrong over the authority of Scripture. Jesus would condemn in the harshest language those who would enable the destruction of a human life for convenience or any other reason. He would speak out against any who would seek to divide our nation and our world into tribes that constantly seek grievances against each other. He would call us to live at peace with all men, and he would condemn violence as a solution to any social problem or political disagreement. At the same time, politically conservative people would reject him because his words speak too much about race. Think about what Jesus said about the Samaritans, who were a hated race at his time. Think about the result when Jesus spoke of the widow of Zarephath being blessed by God, or Naaman the leper being healed as the Syrian leader. They wanted to stone him to death, because he spoke the truth about racial issues in his time. When, we, when he calls out those who want to compartmentalize their faith around ideologies that single out individual salvation without fully engaging in the world. Jesus would never be satisfied with people calling him savior if they're not willing to sacrifice their time and treasure by tangibly investing in the have-nots of society. He would never be satisfied with writing a check to salve our conscience while the children of our world starve. Young girls are exploited sexually around the world. The gap between the haves and the have-nots continue to expand. He would speak with love to people who struggle with sexual sin of all sorts, rather than condemn them. He would know them. He would feel their pain. He would relate to their heartache, and so draw them into a loving and caring relationship with himself. You see, the sinful people of the 21st century America are just as lost as the Pharisees of old. And make no mistake, there are Pharisees on both sides of the political aisle. And let me be frank, in our worst moments, we are them. In my worst moments, that's me. And that's not acceptable. An ideology says to defend your view stridently, even aggressively, if necessary, to get what you want. Incarnation says, allow your life to be your defense through demonstrations of kindness and gentleness. An ideology is very pragmatic. The results demonstrate the rightness of your cause. Incarnation says, how you get to the result is as important or more important than the result that you get. Ideologies create categories like race, gender, sexual orientation, etc. as the lens through which you see, discover, filter, and understand the world. Incarnation says that all persons are created in the image of God, have infinite value and worth, and must be treated with dignity. Ideology is driven by focusing on and defending my rights and leads to frustration and anger when things do not go the way that I think they should go. And when that happens, I immediately turn to social media in order to vent my spleen and 
about any offense against me. I can do so as stridently as I want because of the safety of being anonymous behind my screen name. Incarnation is driven by the recognition of my own sinfulness and my sinful tendencies. And this forces me to regularly consider what true forgiveness would look like for those who offend me. Because of what Christ has done, I embrace laying down my rights, if to do so will lead to the betterment and salvation of others. Ideology demands not just a willingness that you tolerate my views, but insist that you celebrate and affirm me. It ultimately demands that you conform to my position. Incarnation remains steadfast. It does not wink at sin. It does not compromise with evil. It does not justify that which is clearly contrary to the will of God. When incarnation requires you to stand in opposition to the current world ideologies, it says you must do so in meekness and gentleness and kindness and without bitterness or anger. Should this result in your persecution and provided that you are suffering for the sake of the righteousness of righteousness, you can take heart. Because Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let me remind you of what we just read in John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. With those words, John invites us into the mystery of the incarnation. The eternal God, the source and creator of all things, who is completely holy, who is all-powerful, entered the mess of our world and became one of us, taking on human flesh. The incarnation of the Son of God transforms everything in our world. And just to put a fine point on it, the truth of the matter is this. The incarnate and living Son of God is not willing to take second place to any ideology. Our total allegiance is due to Jesus Christ alone. That's like the main point. So let me say it again. The incarnation of the Son of God transforms everything. The truth of that is that the incarnate and living God is not willing to take second place to any ideology. God's to our total allegiance is due to Jesus Christ alone. Pastor and teacher, former professor at Regent University, David Darrell Johnson, writes this. Governments or cultures that step out from under the rule of God do not become more divine. They become demonic. Governments and cultures that exalt humanity as the measure of all things do not become more humane. They become more bestial. What he has identified, and what I think we fail to recognize too often, is that this is ultimately a spiritual battle that's going on in our world. For your heart, and your mind, and that of your children. The bestial destruction of society poured out by satanic principalities and powers of this world is always focused on women and children first. Look around the culture that we live in. The media in all its forms exalts violence and promiscuity. 
Movie trailers are designed to draw us in, to arouse our emotions, and often Christian parents are struggling to decide between the level of violence or the level of sexuality to which they'll expose their children as young as 10 or 11 years old. Much popular music coarsens our sensitivity to that which is profane. Public discourse, once the domain of civil disagreement, has devolved into warring tribes where personal accusations and attacks have replaced logical argument and sound bites are used to distort an opponent's views. Even attendance at a sporting event, once wholesome family fair, now exposes children to language that in prior times would never have been heard in polite society. If you don't believe me, go back and watch the Celtics game from the other night in Boston and the Celtics crowd. What is the effect of all this? We're living in a culture that does horrific damage to women and children, demeaning and abusing them at every turn, with seemingly nobody prepared to speak against the tide, at the risk of being canceled. Personal freedom is now licensed to do whatever I want, and you can't confront me about it. And the more offensive the display is to the sensibility of Christians, the more it is celebrated by the influences of our day. We live in a technological age, and as a result of that, we're conducting some sort of new experiment on how to live. We live in a time when screen time is replacing human interaction. There may be some of you at home this morning watching this on TV who are doing so not because you have a health issue or you have something else, but because it's more convenient and you like to do so with your coffee. Let me tell you, that's not the biblical model of what a church is supposed to be. You're not intended to experience church as a spectator activity. Watching on Facebook or YouTube is not the same as worshiping in person. You can't bear the burdens of a brother or sister, as I already was trying to do in prayer this morning, if you're sitting at home in comfort. You need to rub shoulders with real people. You need to hear their pain. You need to feel their anger, their anger and, their, and their, all, their dis, all the dysfunction that's going on around them. You can't grow in grace and knowledge on your own. Nobody will ever hold you to a higher standard. And if you're like me, you're really good at excusing your own behavior. The church can never address the societal problems that I've outlined unless we face them together. If we isolate ourselves, we're going to be powerless to address the spiritual battle that's before us. We're living in a time when children and even adults have taken a profound step backward in our ability to relate to one another on a human level. I think we all feel it as a result of this pandemic. We no longer feel as comfortable as we used to speaking to other people because we have two years behind a screen. Recent studies show that social anxiety is at an all-time high among every age group. Children are suffering from depression at an incredibly young age and are being medicated in order to help them cope with life. Five times as many children died from suicide than from COVID over the past two plus years. That's a fact. That speaks to the desperation of our world. Students are watching material on television and the internet that is destructive to them socially, physically, psychically, and spiritually. Let me just give you two examples of how my world has changed as an educator over 45 years. 
I began my teaching career 45, 48 years ago now. If you had asked me at that time, would I ever have to prepare my students for a lockdown situation where their lives would be in jeopardy from an active shooter, I would have looked at you like you were crazy. Now, three times a year, I need to have the talk with my students about what we will do if we are invaded. I have to talk to them about how, how important it is for them to remain completely silent when the lockdown drill set happens. And at the same time, in a Christian school, I have to somehow balance that reality with the reality of God's care, God's provision, and the fact that God will protect us. And if you're 12 and you're living in a really black and white world, that's real hard to sort out. I don't want them to live in fear. But that has become our world. If you'd asked me 48 years ago if I thought I'd be talking to my students about the fact that they should never feel so alone and isolated that they would contemplate taking their own life. That they are of infinite worth in the eyes of God and those who love them. That they should call out for help and never ever go down the road of self-destruction. I would have looked at you like you had two heads. But every single year, I have to tell my students, if you ever start to feel this way, you hunt me down, and I will get to you. You are too precious. You are too valuable. You are too loved by God. Don't ever think about that. If you told me 48 years ago I'd have that conversation, I would have had no, no context to even interpret that remark. That's my world at the little Christian school down the road. What our current social experiment have wrought is that we have stepped out from under the rule of God and our culture has not become more humane. We have become more bestial. We know well the problems of our world. We're so inundated with the distressing reality around us that we become numb to the pain and feel completely powerless. How many shootings and terrorist attacks will there be this year? How many will die from the scourge of fentanyl and other addictive drugs? How many children or the elderly will face physical abuse? How much more will the suicide culture grow in our society? How much vitriol and division in our politics? How many natural disasters? How many refugees fleeing war looking for a place to be? It's overwhelming. It can be overwhelming. This is the disaster that is wrought by sin in our world, and even in the church, where tragically the statistics are hardly the, are virtually the exact same as they are for the world. The problem is not out there. The problem is right here among us. And if we live in isolation and we don't engage with one another, you go it on your own, and it's a desperate place to be. Jesus came for a different reason. This disaster wrought by sin in our world and even in the church shows how tragically far we are from the original created order of God. 
where things were made very good. We have stepped out from under the rule of God and are reaping what has been sown. But in the middle of it all, there is good news. And that's where I want to turn now. The incarnation reminds us that God did not leave us as orphans. He entered into the brokenness of our world in order to save us from the destruction wrought by sin. He came to set things right and to heal all his creation. As Isaiah spoke of the coming Messiah, quote, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Then the wolf shall lay down with the lamb and the leopard shall lay down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. This hope of a new renewed world belongs to us because of the incarnation. Jesus came to begin a new kingdom, a kingdom of truth and life, a kingdom of holiness and grace, a kingdom of justice, love and peace, an eternal and universal kingdom where all can live in holiness as his children. Christ is not like the kings of the world. The poverty of his birth and death reveal that his kingdom and the transformation he brings will be very different from the one offered by the world. His kingdom grows hidden and slow like the seed that's planted in the ground. Jesus doesn't overthrow the evil of this world or end its suffering. He enters into our suffering to transform it with his love. This is why the word becomes flesh. And it is what we, his followers, are called to imitate as we compassionately enter into the suffering of our world. Life transformation comes from within the human heart as we begin to understand and share Jesus' life. When we let the reality of the incarnation replace any and all ideologies that are preeminent to the truth, we know that our ultimate transformation to the fullness of life will only come when Christ returns to fully establish his kingdom. Until then, it will remain hidden and a poor imitation of the real thing. But we also know that personal transformation comes about progressively in the here and now as we follow his path, as we embrace our cross and overcome evil with love. Following an ideology will persuade you to expect to see success in worldly terms. That's a fool's errand which will lead to your spiritual destruction. Following the way of the Incarnation guarantees one thing. We can expect that the path of Christ will involve suffering. Suffering is the normal lot of the Christian experience, but Christ is present in the midst of whatever suffering you experience, and the world will watch to see how you respond. The world as we know it is in desperate shape. Christians who follow the Incarnation live and love according to the principles of Jesus and are essential if we are going to overcome the rage and hysteria that is ubiquitous in our nation. We must heal our immediate and extended families by making them places of Christ's love. We need to confess our sins to one another and freely forgive those who sin against us, especially those who are closest to us, with whom we hold deep grudges. To follow the incarnation means we love our neighbors and our neighborhoods, sharing Christ's mercy with all we meet. Our neighbors are those we know, those who share our worldview, and those who don't. Those who think like us and those who would attack us on social media. We need to initiate relationships with those who stand in opposition to what we believe in order to break down the stereotypes that are a sticking point to genuine reconciliation. 
When we live out the incarnation, we make our businesses agents of righteousness, leading them with the Christian principles of truth and integrity. As employees, we model a proper work ethic, giving a full day's effort for a fair day's pay. We are known as people who always speak the truth. And if the truth as we see it is unkind, we are wise enough to keep our mouths shut. Because not every thought that comes out of our minds is worth coming out of our mouths or being posted on social media. The Incarnation challenges us to strive to redeem art and architecture by inspiring a new generation of artists with the truth and beauty of the gospel. Where their creativity often expresses anger, rage, and darkness, we must assist people to follow the guidance of scripture so that their efforts are transformed and begin to reflect whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. We need to help them see that some things are worthy and should be reflected on. In short, as we live out the incarnation, whatever we do for Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit should be done so that the world can experience the love of Christ. So I put it to you in these terms. Will you allow the ideologies of the current age to govern your heart and mind and actions? Or will you commit yourself wholly once again to Jesus Christ in order to be transformed by the impl implications of the Incarnation? The world is watching and eternity is at stake. Let's pray together. God, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that I've identified your word correctly. And yet I know that anytime that you voice things like this, you can offend people. And I pray that no offense would be taken by anything I've said this morning, but that where there's truth, it would be embraced, and where there's stuff that's outside the lines, that it'd be stuff that can just be over, over dismissed. I pray that this would not be a divisive moment but this would be a united moment, a galvanizing moment, something that draws us closer and closer to you, to your heart, to your heart for us, to your heart for the world. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing together. <laughs>